on the Lean Out Podcast, we've been talking about the state of the modern male. And today, my guest on the podcast is going to walk us through his landmark study on an invisible crisis afflicting prime working-aged men in America. And that is the collapse of work. The work rate for modern American men is at Great Depression levels. Nicholas Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book is Men Without Work. It's recently out in a post-pandemic edition. Nicholas Eberstadt is my guest today on Lean Out. Nick, welcome to Lean Out. Hey, Tara. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to have you here. Such a timely and important piece of work to discuss today. So you write in the new introduction to Men Without Work that today in 2022, American men suffered Depression-era employment rates, even though they inhabit the wealthiest and most productive society ever known. Your book, a 2016 study, has been now released in this post-pandemic edition. We'll get to how the pandemic has exacerbated the trends you've observed. But first, let's let's set the stage here. Give our listeners a sense of the timeline and the scope of the problem that you call this invisible crisis. Well, thank you, Tara. Thank you for having me here. The prosperity of modern America has helped to conceal a sort of a catastrophe in employment collapse for prime age men prime working age men, not my definition, Uh, 25 to 54 is pretty self-evident why they're called this. They're not just important for the workforce where they're a main component. These are the crucial years for family formation and raising kids as well. For about two decades after the end of the Second World War, American prime male workforce participation was very, very high. Maybe 3% of men were not uh, working or looking for work. Then around the mid-1960s, something happened, and it was a big something, because there was a retreat from the workforce, a flight from the labor market that was almost a straight line upwards between the mid-60s and 2016, when my first edition of Men Without Work came out, it almost looks like a straight line. It almost looks like something out of you know geology rather than something out of the social sciences. And since then, this straight line has continued on almost exactly the same direction. That's very odd. I could have almost drawn the same line back in 2016, and you could have seen it continue to this very day. Uh, without altering it uh, at all. What this means is that over three times the share of men out of work and out of the labor force can be seen today in America as back in the 60s. And in practical terms, this means that the work rate for modern American men is at Great Depression levels. Uh, we didn't start measuring employment seriously in the United States until the very tail end of the Great Depression, till 1940 census. But the uh, work rate this month 
for American prime age guys is lower than it was in 1940, when the unemployment rate in the country as a whole was 15%. And for the 21st century as a whole, for the entire 21st century, you average it out month by month, the work rate for prime age guys is substantially lower than it was in 1940. For the 21st century to date, we have had a sort of a 1937 economy for work for men, even though we live in this fantastically wealthy, productive, technologically dynamic world. I mean, it really is astonishing. And as you point out in the book, America is kind of alone in this. It's it's not happening in other rich countries in the same way. Is that right? Absolutely true, Tara. I mean, of course, it is true that all around the world, rich populations, affluent democracies have been affected by economic and structural change and globalization. There's been a uh, decline in manufacturing as uh, a proportion of the workforce everywhere. There's been outsourcing everywhere. Uh, there's been a decline in the demand for less skilled labor everywhere. So all through the rich world, we've seen some drop in work rate in um, workforce participation for prime age men, but nothing like what you see in the United States. The United States, unfortunately, is the leader of the pack. It has gone down more dramatically and more harshly and over a longer period of time than any of its peer competitors. And speaking to you, I guess you're in Canada, I assume, right? Okay. Well, your country and mine are about as close to being identical twins as any big countries in the world can be. And and the United States labor force participation rate for guys, as you know, is substantially lower than Canada's. Something else that really struck me reading the book, and I want to get to what we know about this male cohort in a moment. But but first, you, you talk about this quiet post-war collapse of male work, and you point out that this crisis involves no outward obvious signs of national distress, no national strikes, no riots, no massive social unrest. It's It seems to be what's happening is instead this retreat and this quiet despair. What do we know about the response here? Well, we know what hasn't happened. Uh, the depression level work rates for men in America have not been accompanied by riots in the streets, by burning of cars, by mass strikes, by any sort of actual political energization of uh, even a tendency within one of our major parties. It's been largely ignored. It's kind of curious that such an extraordinarily important uh, social problem could be overlooked for decade after decade. I mean, one of the reasons I think this has been the case is because these men have not been uh, a menace to society. Uh, they have been uh, much more likely to be kind of courting deaths of despair at home. Uh, another reason is that I think that ideologically, we are not predisposed to be alert to this problem. Working age men are not a victim class in the modern kind of socio-political taxonomy. They're expected to be sort of self-reliant and not vulnerable dependents. And so I think they, uh, they easily get overlooked in this, uh, in this problem, problem set. So it's also true that our employment statistics in the United States are uniquely or 
exquisitely poorly poised to identify this problem. We developed, as I mentioned earlier, our national employment statistics to fight the last war, which was the Great Depression. And at the time of the Great Depression, it would have seemed really kind of unimaginable that a man who didn't have a job wouldn't be looking for one. So our taxonomy uh, looks at those who are employed and those who are not employed but looking for a job. And if you were in the not in labor force group, you're kind of not in the problem set here. We have this amazing situation in modern America where we therefore get all of this happy talk about how low our unemployment levels are. We're at near full employment. We're at full employment. And at the very same time, if you actually take a look at the population numbers for every unemployed guy, this is in 2022, this is right now, for every unemployed guy, there are over four who are neither working nor looking for work. So our uh, our wonderful labor statistics managed to overlook four-fifths of the problem. So all of this is part of how we get this benign neglect, I think. Mm. And so let's talk about what we know about the demographics of this cohort. What, what do we know? Who Who are these men? Well, at the moment, there are over 7 million prime age men in the civilian, non-institutional uh, population, these are the technical terms, who are neither working nor looking for work. And if you have 7 million guys in a group, you're going to have some of everything, right? That's a big group. But some are overrepresented. And in ethnic terms, Black Americans, African Americans are overrepresented. Latinos and Asians are underrepresented. And that means that if you do what's common now, if you talk about like Anglos or non-Hispanic whites versus so-called persons of color, um, it's, a, it's about a wash. They're very similar if you put those groups together like that. It's no surprise that less educated, educational attainment uh, men have much higher uh, disposition to be out of the workforce. But interestingly enough, about 40% of those who are out of the workforce have at least some college, and about a fifth have college degrees. It turns out that family structure is a really big predictor. Married men with kids at home are way less likely to be out of the workforce, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their education. Guys who have never been married are way more likely, correspondingly, to be labor force dropouts. But interestingly enough, if you're a never married guy and you've got kids under the same roof as you, you're more likely to be in the workforce. There's this something, it, it, it almost looks like a provider impulse or something. And then there's something um, that the Census Bureau or the US, which collects all of these numbers, uh, uh, inelegantly calls nativity, which is not a Christmas scene. It's like whether you were born in the U.S. or not. And foreign-born guys are always more likely to be in the workforce than native-born guys, no matter what their ethnicity. Uh, these are the basic overlays of the, uh, you know, of the demographics of the dropout situation. And what do we know about how these men are spending their time? Well, we know something about how they're spending their time from what they tell us, because there are these big annual surveys done by our Bureau of Labor Statistics called time use surveys. They're asked of all adults. They're mainly uh, intended to show you know, 
what hours people are working, what times they're working, how they're commuting, things like that. But since it's asked to all adults, we also have a pretty good picture of what's happening with the male workforce dropouts. And it's a pretty depressing tableau. Of those seven plus million that I mentioned to you, about a tenth, maybe a little more than a tenth, are actually full-time students. Uh, they're training to get back into the workforce. Their time use patterns look pretty much like employed guys. What is concerning is the overwhelming remainder of that group who described in the UK and maybe in Canada as NEET, N-E-E-T, neither employed nor in education and training. According to what they say, and everybody lies on surveys, but I don't think they're lying uh, to make themselves look miserable. They report that they really don't do much civil society. They don't do much worship. They don't do much volunteering or charity. Uh, they've got a whole lot of time on their hands, but they report that they don't do a whole lot of help around the house, either uh, housework, chores, or helping with others at home. What they do report is that they spend a whole lot of time in front of screens. Surveys don't tell us what they're watching. They don't tell us what type of devices they're watching. They report about 2,000 hours a year in front of screens watching stuff. Okay. Now, 2,000 hours is a pretty good full-time job. That's uh, well above the average annual hours per worker in Canada. And, and it's even above the average annual work, uh, hours per worker in the States. To make this tableau even more dispiriting, every so often the every so often these surveys ask some kind of additional questions. And before the pandemic, one of the additional questions was asked one year was, uh, do you take pain medication? Almost half of the uh, labor force dropouts said, yes, I take pain medication every day. Not necessarily opioids, but pain medication. So we have this picture painted for us by those who are in the, in the contingent of a life where, you know, not just playing Call of Duty all day, but they're playing, you know, Call of Duty stoned. And that's not a way, and that is a miserable existence as a kind of a you know, day in, day out uh, expectation. And it's not uh, a sort of a skill set that's going to get you back into the workforce, which is one of the reasons that most of these guys are long-termers. But it may be the sort of pattern that's going to get you, as I mentioned, on this road towards deaths of despair. Yeah, I mean, as you described the picture to me, it sounds like depression, doesn't it? I mean, not leaving the house, not socializing, sort of checking out with drugs and with video games and all, all the rest. I mean, it sounds like depression. Well, it's it, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a sort of a misery because I mean. Um, I'm, I'm not a uh, I'm not a big philosophy reader, but I do recall that Aristotle said that human beings are social creatures and they kind of need to be connected to society to thrive. And if you're not connected to the workforce, disproportionately, this pool of men is not connected to family. You're not getting out of the house. You're not connected to community. Um, you're you're living in this atomized anomie. 
call it depression, call it misery, but it's a um, it's a terrible loss of human potential and a terrible it's a terrible weight on the uh, on the guys themselves, apart from everything else. Mm-hmm. And so, what do we know about how they're supporting themselves? Like, how are they living? Well, again, um, I'm using official information that's available. One thing that's missing from the official information by definition is any sort of info on moonlighting and um, you know, sideline work. My impression is that that's not a big part of household budgets uh, for these uh, for these male dropouts. It's there, but it's not a big part of the picture. Mainly, it appears that they're supported by friends and family. If you include in family Uncle Sam, the U.S. government, girlfriends help out living at home with uh, parents or others uh, is uh, is part of the routine often, not always. U.S. government benefits matter as well. And here in particular, we have a kind of a crazy quilt patchwork of disability insurance programs in the U.S. They don't talk to each other. There's nobody in Washington who can tell you unambiguously exactly how many people in the United States are even getting disability insurance because of the multiplicity of uh, non-communicative programs. As far as I could tell by looking at some of the surveys, it looks like over half of before the pandemic, over half of the uh, labor force dropouts were obtaining at least one disability benefit. Many were obtaining two or three. About two thirds lived in homes that were obtaining at least one disability benefit. Now, you're not going to live a princely existence on the kind of the penurious stipend that you get from U.S. disability programs, but it does apparently seem to be enough to provide a kind of a work-free existence for millions and millions of guys. And I should mention one other thing. These men, for the most part, are not at the very bottom of our income scale or of our uh, standard of living. That is reserved disproportionately for our single mothers in the United States who have a really hard road to hoe. The unworking men tend to be in the second quintile, the 20 to 40 percent group. And ironically, that's where, you know, an earlier era, we would have expected to see what we used to call the working class. But this is kind of the unworking class. Hmm. And the period of history that we're talking about, there were so many kind of massive, wide-scale societal changes. So I want to ask you about three and the role that they've played. I mean, first of all, uh, the period of time we're talking about saw women enter the labor market en masse. How much has that contributed to men's low labor force participation? There's a big debate about that, and I guess I'm kind of on one side of the debate. I'm not I'm not convinced the way that some other people are that the mass entry of women into paid work has displaced men, uh, has forced men out of the workforce. First, because we don't see the same thing in other affluent societies where there's been a mass entry of women into paid work. Second, because if we look at 
the earlier post-war trends from, let's say, 19 late 40s until the year 2000. We had a huge influx of women into the workforce. And if they were displacing men, our national labor force participation rate would have been flat. But the labor force participation rate went up dramatically during that time period. So they were supplementing men. Since about the year 2000, both participation rates for women and for men have been coming down in the United States. So uh, so we have this kind of circle of misery that's continuing, uh, and it doesn't look they're both feeling uh, feeling each other's pain in the uh, in the labor market this way. I would mention one other thing, which I talk about in the post pandemic edition of Men Without Work. We seem to be having a new phenomenon in the United States, which bears watching. It is newer than the male labor force dropout phenomenon, which goes back now almost 60 years. This is the rise of women who are not in the labor force, who have no children at home, and who are not currently married. And this group is not as large as the group of men I've been describing, but it does number now in the millions because it has been growing very rapidly. And their time use patterns, uh, self-reported, are looking a little too close to comfort to the dropout men. This mm. is not the sort of equality that we want to see being mm -hmm. generated in our society. Mm, so interesting. And um, also in, in this time period that we're talking about, there has been mass immigration. Has that played a role? Yes, mass immigration certainly has played a role, in part because we've seen we've seen that the newcomers to the United States have been assimilated so well that they are more likely to be in the workforce than our native-born population. This, by the way, is not the case in a number of affluent societies, including a number of societies in Western Europe. But we do see this in the US. I think we see it in Canada as well. There's a big debate about whether immigrants are taking American, native-born American jobs. I think the... Uh, of course, it is true that when uh, you have more of something, all other things being equal, the price comes down, and that may have an impact upon domestic wages. But if you look at the least skilled part of the U.S. male population, you have this um, strikingly heterogeneous pattern of labor force participation. If you are a high school dropout and a guy, and you were born abroad and you're married, your workforce participation rates are the same as college grads. If you are a high school dropout and you're born in the States and you are never married, you have less than a 50% chance of even being in the labor force. So there's a tremendous heterogeneity there, and it isn't just a skill needs-based uh, factor. One other point I would mention. We had a natural experiment in the United States during the pandemic. Flows of immigrants into the United States were dramatically disrupted. I imagine that was also true in Canada. I mean, just because travel kind of shut down. As best 
as best I can estimate, we have about a million fewer a million fewer foreign-born workers in our workforce today than we would have had on pre-pandemic trends. Native-born Americans didn't go in and fill those jobs. Instead, we had the opposite happen. During the pandemic and post-pandemic period, the number of unfilled slots in the United States skyrocketed. We now have a peacetime labor shortage in the United States. The number of, of openings leapt by 4 million, and the number of people in the workforce dropped below what we would have expected on pre-pandemic trends by about 4 million. So we had we ran the experiment, and in the short term at least, the results seem to suggest that less immigrants does not mean more jobs for or even more uh, workforce participation for native-born Americans. Mm. Now, another issue that you raise in the book is is the expansion of the criminal justice system. And you estimated in 2016 that the ex-felon population is around, or sorry, the adult felon population is around 20 million. That was in 2016. It's obviously much more difficult to find employment if you're in that situation. Yeah. Uh, walk me through your analysis about how this population contributes to the trend. This is one of the um, this is one of the biggest distinctions between the United States and other affluent democracies. Everybody knows about the mass incarceration phenomenon in the United States. About the two million people in prison, higher rates of incarceration than any place else. Well, that's true. But for every person in behind bars in the United States, there are about ten who have a felony conviction in their background and who are not behind bars, who are in society as a whole. So this means we have today over 20 million men and women, adults, with a felony conviction in their background uh, who are just part of general society, and they're obviously overwhelmingly men. About By my rough estimate today, you know, I do this, I show this in the post-pandemic edition of Men Without Work, about one in seven adult guys in the United States has a felony conviction in this background. It's probably higher for the prime age group, slightly higher for the prime age uh, group, the 25 to 54s. Now, for reasons that baffle me, uh, the United States government has shown almost no interest in generating information about this group of Americans. They're almost invisible. There's, they're at least as invisible as illegal aliens in the United States, although they're American citizens. What, what little data I could get my hands on points to dramatically lower workforce participation rates for felonized Americans than even for high school dropouts. So if the Census Bureau had bothered to inquire about this when we we're talking about the demography of the 7 million, we'd also, I think, see that people with guys with felony convictions in their background are way overrepresented in this dropout population. And there's just one more sort of force I wanted to get into. And you, uh, at the end of the book, there's uh, critiques 
provided by Henry Olson and Jared Bernstein, and both of them raised the issue of the deindustrialization of America and said they felt you didn't spend enough, you know, pay enough attention to that. Um, you, of course, responded at the end of the book, but what is your response to that in terms of the role uh, deindustrialization sure. has played? Well, I'd, I'd put deindustrialization de-industrializa- as a factor everywhere in the modern affluent democratic world. And everywhere we see this decline to some degree in male workforce participation. We have to ask why it is so dramatic in the United States. I mean, one uh, idea would be the United States is more modern and dynamic than all other societies. And that would be very uh, flattering to us, I suppose. But I, I don't buy that. Because what what we see if we look at the overall picture is that economic and technical structural change cannot explain a lot of what's going on in the U.S. Remember I said we've got this almost straight line up in terms of the percentage of guys not in the labor force. If this were a problem that were decisively affected by economic uh, demand, if this were a demand side problem, it would fluctuate with the business cycle. It doesn't. There's no sign. You can't tell when China entered uh, the World Trade Organization. There's no China shock there. So all of these things that we would have expected from a structural deindustrialization, you know, kind of economic transformation perspective don't show up quite the way that they're supposed to. The final, uh, I think, kicker here uh, is that when the first edition of this book came out, some of the critics basically, you know, very politely said, Eberstadt, you moron, you don't understand there aren't any jobs out there. It's very hard to make that argument now that there are 11 million unfilled jobs in modern America, you know, in our in our post-pandemic world. And it's very hard to make the argument that guys without skills can't find work uh, when we have millions and millions of uh, applications uh, like a begging for work where the uh, main skill is to show up uh, on time regularly drug-free. So what Henry and Jared critiqued, I think, is correct to a degree, but it does not explain the whole story. And I think it doesn't even explain most of the story. And I'm so curious, this this work has been out there for a while now. Have you heard from any of the men that you're writing about? Uh, yeah, I have. I've heard from a lot. And it's kind of like being Miss Lonely Hearts. Uh, I mean, it's I mean, a, lot, this, a lot of the stories are really poignant. Some of them are heartbreaking. There's also a lot of uh, courage. I mean, I think it takes a lot of I think it takes a certain amount of grit to reach out to me and to talk about one's own situation there. And I'm a I'm a guy who's just looking at statistics and writing, if you will, in a sort of a bloodless way about what these numbers seem to be saying. But there are 7 million real stories out there that are waiting to be told. And if we had a better class of journalists and a better class of anthropologists and um, even maybe a better class of social workers, we'd have a much more human face uh, on what I'm describing. And maybe it would fill some of the empathy gap that we are manifestly missing because you can't 
understand why this problem has been ignored without positing that there's an enormous empathy gap in our society today. And if I can just ask you on a personal note, as we close, I mean, this is something you've been researching and thinking about and writing about and speaking about for many years. As you've said, it's it's really been quite exacerbated during the pandemic. How are you feeling going forward about the fate of this cohort of, of your fellow American citizens? Well, I suppose the the good uh, the good news is that there's so much that we're not doing that we could be doing to turn the situation around. We could start by uh, committing truth in public about the importance of work, not just to your household budget, but to your persona. Uh, work is a service to others that uh, helps to complete you and to connect you in ways that help people to flourish and thrive. Um, and we do that around our you know, kitchen tables and around in our public uh, public squares and our communities. Uh, the U.S. government and the local governments could do a whole lot more in encouraging vocational skills to fill the skill gap, which is clearly there. Um, we could do another uh, social benefit reform on the nature of the 1990s welfare reform, which was focused on single mothers. We could do a disability benefit reform to put in place a sort of a work first principle. I think that could have really tremendous effects. And we could like lift a finger, we could raise a finger to just start to collect information on our invisible felon population. We can't have evidence-based policies on how to get people back into jobs, into families, into societies if we don't have the evidence. I mean, the United States was the first uh, country in the world to implement regular population censuses in 1790. That was pretty high-tech, you know, data-driven stuff in the 18th century. Why we're not doing this today for our invisible felon population, it, it mystifies me and a little bit it also shames me. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, I think this is such important work. I thank you so much for making the time to speak with me about it today. Tara, it's a delight. Thank you for inviting me. It was so much fun. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. <laughs>